Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published and write with confidence. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. Our team is passionate about all things writing, and in these podcasts, we'll be talking to best-selling authors on their craft. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Joanne Harris is the best-selling author of 14 novels, including Chocolat, Blackberry Wine, and Five Quarters of the Orange. The latest novel is Peaches for Monsieur Le Cure, the third book in the trilogy that started with Chocolat and Lollipop Shoes. In Peaches for Monsieur Le Cure, single mother and chocolatier Bianne Rocher returns to the village of Lansquenet eight years after she left. The village is changing and there are tensions building between the old residents and the growing Moroccan Muslim community. Set during Ramadan in 2010, around the time the French government banned the wearing of full face veils, Peaches explores religious tolerance and change. While Joanne is most well known for her whimsical and magical food lit, she has also written fantasy fiction for younger readers. Rune Marks was published in 2007 and was quickly followed by Rune Light. She has also published a collection of short stories and two French cookbooks. Thanks for joining us today, Joanne. Uh, just tell us a bit more about the latest book. Well, the latest book is called Peaches for Monsieur le Curé, and it is the third in a series of stories about Yann Rocher, who first appeared in Chocolat with her daughter Anouk, the second one was called The Lollipop Shoes, and it happened four years after the events of Chocolat. And this one is four years after that. So eight years have passed between uh, the events of Chocolat and the events in Peaches. Vianne has moved on, or at least she thinks she has, but she is called back to Lascano, the village in which Chocolat was set, by a letter from a friend who died many years ago and she never expected to hear from again. And she finds the community very changed and in need of help. Now, you mentioned this is the third book in the trilogy and it started with Chocolat in 1999. So there's been quite a big gap between the second book and now the third. What is it about these characters that's prompted you to keep revisiting them? Well, I think that Vianne is one of those characters who is on a personal journey of her own and it's clearly not finished yet. Um, I always thought at the end of Chocolat that she had perhaps more stories in her at one point, and, uh, and that turned out to be true. I don't set out to write about her particularly, but occasionally a story just comes and I know that she will be a part of it somehow. In this case, I wanted to write a story about the niqab, the Muslim face veil, because I have written stories about the idea of identity and perception before. And it was a very current topic at the time. France was talking about banning it. Belgium had already banned it. And I wondered what would happen if one of these kind of very traditionalist little Catholic communities in the south of France was faced with a community of Muslims in which there were women wearing this veil. And I thought, well, what if I set it in Luscany? And it became a story about, about those communities. And, and Vianne came into it very naturally. Mm. So was it difficult to write about 
the Muslim religion. Um, I know it's been quite topical in France, obviously, because uh, they're not keen on the the headscarf. Um, was it was it difficult to write about Islam and particularly Islam in a in a community that's not very accepting of strangers? Well, I live in a community with a very large um, Muslim contingent, and so it's not something that's new to me. I I know a lot of Muslim families and. Uh, I spoke to a number of them about the issue of the, the face veil. It has now been banned in France. It's not banned in England. And a number of young women have started choosing to wear it. And I was curious as to why they, they did when their mothers didn't and their grandmothers didn't. And so I, I canvassed a, a number of, uh, of women and, and I got some stories and collected some stories. And one of them became one of the central stories in the book. Um, no, to me it's very natural to write about these things. I, I don't see it as being as alien as some people do think it is. And, uh, and I don't see myself as writing about Islam. I am writing about people, some of whom happen to be Muslim, some Catholic, some neither of those things. Hmm. Um, another thing that features heavily in all of your books is food. How was it, was it a different process writing about food for peaches because I assume you would have touched on a lot of the Middle Eastern cuisine as well as the French which you obviously talk about a lot in your in your past books. Well I think it doesn't really matter what kind of food it is it's more about the emotional resonance of food and what it means to people and this I think is a universal thing wherever you go in the world there are the same broad attitudes to food and it is about family hospitality sharing celebration, affection, sometimes also about things like guilt or need. But those are things that are absolutely understandable wherever you go. And it's one of those kind of universal passports. It's one of those things that we use to bridge the gaps between culture because if you don't know a culture, if you can't speak the language, you can still accept a gift of food and be welcomed into the community that way. Mm. Just tell us a bit more about why food features so heavily in your books. Um, I know when I read uh, Five Quarters of the Orange, the descriptions of the food were just stunning um, and it, it kind of kept coming back to, to preparing food and eating food. Um, why is that such a strong theme in your in your writing? Because it's one of those things that everybody understands. There are so few things that all cultures understand equally. And because my books are published in so many different places, sometimes it's difficult to explain what rural French life is to someone living in, let's say, in Japan or, or Estonia or somewhere like that. It is not difficult to explain about people coming together to make food or passing recipes on or desperately wanting something but not being able to get it because you are in a country at war, as in five quarters of the orange. And these are all things that, that sort of speak emotionally to people on a very easy, direct level. Mm. So in 2007, you took a bit of a um, different tack with your writing, and your first fantasy uh, book came out, Rune Marks. What prompted that shift to a, to a new genre? I don't think it's a shift at all, and I don't think it's a new genre. Um, I've been writing on the edges of fantasy since I started writing. Both my first books were supernatural thrillers of one sort or another. A lot of the books in which Vian Rocher plays a part have a strong supernatural element, and I'm very interested in the, the role that folklore and fairy tale has in influencing modern fiction. So it, it really wasn't a change to me. 
um, instead, this was kind of much more full-out fantasy because I was able to create an entirely different world. But um, to me, it's it's still very much connected with what I've always done. Yeah. But given that you were writing a completely different world, so a completely different setting, was your planning process different for, for Rune Marks and Rune Light at all? Or was it very similar to how you write your other novels? I think it was quite similar in a lot of ways. I mean, I had established the, the world um, right at the beginning, and it is a world very much based on the world of Norse mythology, which I'm familiar with and have been influenced by since I was a child, really. I think the first things I wrote were were set in that kind of universe, and so it was quite easy to revisit it. Um, but within that, um, the kind of communities that I write about in, in the Rune books are actually very similar to the ones that I write about in the ones that... Uh, the communities that are set in France, there are the same kind of insiders and outsiders and gossips and religious leaders and people who do wrong for the, the, the for reasons that they think are right and all the rest of it. It's still about people. Yep. Um, so tell us a bit about your journey to writing because Chocolat wasn't your first book, but it was the one that kind of established uh, your reputation, I guess. Yeah. I had been a teacher for 15 years, and I'd already published two books before Chocolat. But, you know, most of the time you can't make a living just writing books. And so I had this day job, and for a long time it was perfectly compatible. When Chocolat became unexpectedly as popular as it did, um, I was put in a position where I had to I had to give up teaching or give up writing. And so I, I went into writing without really knowing whether it was going to work, but knowing that I had to take a punt on it because otherwise I'd always be asking myself what would have happened. And then, of course, Chocolat was made into a film a couple of years later. What was that process like? What was it like to watch your book being adapted to a film and then presumably a new audience coming to the book from that movie? Well, it was quite surreal. Um, obviously, I didn't have all that much to do with it. I was kind of on the periphery of it because all my work had already been done. Um, and so I, I watched it with curiosity and, and not much belief in it ever being made because most of the time options are taken up but you never get to see the end product. Yeah, yeah. How, how did that feel, though? I mean, um, watching it... Well, it felt great. It was, um, you know, I, I read several versions of the screenplay. From that, I'd had a certain idea of what they were going to do and they kept changing the rules and so I was very relieved when finally they went back to something that was much closer to my original story because they'd gone through a phase of wanting to set it in the States and, and wanting to change the storyline outside of all recognition and then, then they went back to the original story and they had a European director, a very good European mm. cast. Yep. Tell us a bit about your daily writing routine. Um, obviously, you've published quite a few books, 14 novels, I believe, um, in a relatively short period of time. Um, what's your process like while you're writing? Do you sit down and do a few hours each day or is it more organic? It's not very, um, it's, it's not very much of a routine at all because I, I, I can't afford a routine. I'm travelling around so much and I do so many different things that... The idea of being able to say, I will be available to work between these hours just doesn't make sense. So, right. you know, the work gets done when it gets done. Um, because I'm used to having other jobs going on at the same time, I'm not 
I'm not bound by a lot of rules about where I've got to be or what time it's got to be or, or what the circumstances have to be. I just tend to use the time that's available. So if I'm traveling, I can work in hotel rooms, I can work on planes. If I'm at home, I have the luxury of working at home, which is nice. Mm. So do you tend to stick to one project at a time or do you always have a few different things on the go? It depends. Very often I have several things on the go because um, I don't always work in a linear way from one end of a book to another and uh, very often I'll leave something for months or sometimes even for years before I'll come back to finish it and during that time I'll work on something else. Yeah, yeah. So are you working on a new novel now while you're jetting around the world for the latest promo? I've got another one of my rune books on the way which um, which I'm working on and I've been writing short stories as I often do when I'm kind of in the middle of uh, other things and then I guess at some point there'll be something else but I, I don't know what it's going to be yet. Yeah sure so um, you just mentioned short stories there is that something you do a lot of? No, not very much. I don't I don't find that short stories come very easily to me and so if I write three or four a year that's usually the maximum. Um I just have a collection of short stories that I've just finished and it's just come out now called A Cat, a Hat and a Piece of String and that took me about six years to, to put together. Before that I had a collection of short stories called Jigs and Reels which has taken me another six years to put together. So that's sort of the time scale. But they tend to be very varied and they tend to be based on all kinds of things that usually that I've encountered on my travels, people, places, have triggered these stories. Yeah. Is that why they tend to take a few years to get a collection together? Because you're, I guess, waiting for the for the inspiration? Well, yes. I mean, I'm not particularly motivated to look for short stories. They They tend to come to me and usually it's triggered by an event or something that I've seen. Or, or a place that I visited, and a lot of them have been written while I was travelling, or in connection with something that happened when I was travelling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so just one final question. Uh, what is your advice to budding authors? Well, I'm not sure I should give any advice to budding authors, really, except that they should read as much as they can, because this is how you learn, and that... Whatever they do other than writing, they should they should love writing because so few young authors get a chance nowadays in conventional publishing and there's so much rejection out there that people who go into it thinking that they're going to do it and get famous or get rich or get girls or whatever are, tend to be on the wrong track. You have to love it first and foremost because that's the way that it sustains and that's the way you can get past all the awful problems of, of getting into print. Hmm. Okay, that, well, that's very good advice. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. I know you're very busy with your book tour. Oh, it's a pleasure. And good luck with Monsieur Le Cure. <laughs> I think I pronounced that correctly. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Joanne. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the team from the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars, and online learning programs where we help students from all over the world. I'm author of the book, Power Stories, the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business. And you can find out more on my personal website, ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.